Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Roy Anderson, global educational consultant and author. Roy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you are um, doing is is really interesting. Um, but before we maybe get into um, that, let's get to know you a little bit better and maybe cover your background and kind of where you grew up. Yeah, okay. I was I was born in Liverpool in England. Okay. I went school there. Okay, so what did you kind of take in university then? Well, what happened with my school life is that I kind of was always center, always average. I never got more than about six out of ten. Okay. I didn't understand why. Um, I thought I was doing the right thing. I tried to smile in the right way, but I never got seven or eight or nine, and ten was way beyond me. Okay. Um, and then suddenly I did the final examinations, and I got this piece of paper back which said, you, 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 which meant unclassified. <laughs> and this was so low that they couldn't grade me. So I was basically literate. Then I okay. left kind of with a shock uh, because they'd said I was average throughout all the school uh, grades and classrooms. So it was kind of a shock to fail everything. And then, um, well, then I did various jobs and I, then I went in the army for a bit. And that really changed my life. Uh, we were on this training course and we came to this um, cross country. We came to this big hill and the sergeant said, OK, you have to line up in threes. And the last one up has to do it again. And we just run, you know, out of like a long way and heart beating, heaving, things like that. Sure. And we started running up this hill and I was first. And then somebody overtook me. And then suddenly the guy behind pulled me down and he overtook me. And when I got to the top of this hill, I couldn't say, you know, it's not fair. I had to go down and do it again. And I thought, there's no way I can keep doing this. It's just not possible. So when the green light went, uh, I made sure I got to the top. And that changed my character. It, it kind of made me realize that you have to fight to get what you want in life. For sure. I, th- I think that's really good advice. Yeah. And uh, so, of course, in a nice way. And sure. then, uh, then I, I went, then I decided that I, I didn't really want to be in the army because I wanted to think. And that's not what the army wanted you to do. So I, I, was, I met a lot of friends there, and I really liked it, but I thought, it's not what my heart wants to do. I want to go back to school. Okay. And I, I couldn't work in the military mind, so I wanted that freedom. So I left, and I went to a, a college, and I said, you know, I'd like to take my school examinations. They put me in this examination hall, and they wrote back to me and said, I'm sorry, but you're so low, you can't even begin the basic uh, course. Okay. So I went, into, I went into a bookshop, and I saw this book, How to Learn Mathematics, and how to learn English. Okay. I bought these, and then with the discipline that I acquired in the army, you know, press ups, running, things like that. Sure. And then I made a kind of a routine where I learned, I, I did exercises, I learned, I did exercises, and I devoted myself to learning these books. And then I went back to do another entrance examination, and this time I was first in mathematics and second in English, really? which was I'd never ever achieved before. Then I went into a marine college because um, I wanted to go to sea. And I was a top student in the first year. And I did 14 in examinations. And I, was, I got distinction in all of them. And after that, I was accepted to, be a, to go into a dental uh, university to become a dentist. But okay. instead of that, I went to sea. And that really made me, that changed my whole life about what I could be and what I could achieve. But it left within my mind something, a big question, why could I do this when I was 23, 24, but it was impossible for me when I was 17? And this why, 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 why always lingered within me. And when my children were born, I was very keen to show them how to be sensitive in the world about them. And then I got to a stage in my life where I thought, what am I going to do? And I just wondered if it was the same for kids then, which was 20 years ago, if it was when I was a kid. And so then I started talking to teachers, and I found out that nothing had changed. And I, I said to the teachers, look, why aren't these kids all getting top marks? And the, the underlying response was, came me back, was, well, 
it's not our fault, it's what the kids were born with. And then, I thought, and then I thought to myself, well, when I looked at my life, I could understand that I was illiterate and a poor performer throughout school and I failed everything because of my genes. But when I was 23, how could I achieve this phenomenal success with the same genes? Sure. So then I began to really examine what we think about genetics and I studied genetics. Then I studied neurology with a very famous neurologist. Then I went into political science, social science, how education works, learning philosophies. And I just found out, and of course I would, meet, I would go in schools and work as a teacher, and I would help kids part-time, things like that. And it just struck me that whenever I met somebody who had a problem, all you got to do is just calm down, give a lot of love, patience, and try to help them to find out where it all went wrong. And that's really been my philosophy, is to take somebody uh, individually right back to what they knew and then see how to re rebuild it from there. Once I started to pull my books together, or five of them, sure. I kind of realized that I wasn't writing to prove that intelligence is not genetic. I was writing to prove that we need a new kind of education because I realized that that the world that our children will grow up into will be very different than our world is today. Now, we're aware of global warming. Sure. We're kind of apathetic about what happens about it. Um, we get storms and we get various catastrophes. But when you really think about what is really happening and what it could really happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years' time, it makes you wonder what kind of world our children will be living in. So then I started to study something called nanotechnology. Sure. And a lot of people will say, well, uh, we all use nanotechnology. Now, now you have nanofibers, you have nano this and nano that. But when you really understand what nanotechnology could be and what it could develop into, it's very disturbing because it offers uh, a technological world where, um, the, where the machines will control and do everything. Totally. And that means that the purpose of the citizen in society must change. We are driven now in, 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 in schools to teach children to, to do the best they can, to get the best grades they can, to get into university and get the best jobs so that they can have a better life. But this idea grew in the industrial age. You know, when we went from the agricultural to the industrial phase, everything became processing, we became totally. a processed individual. And that produced a kind of um, fighting mood. You know, I will be better than him and and I don't want her to be better than me because then I'll have more money and I'll have more security for my children. But in the world that we're moving into, where we'll have increased population, you know, from 1950 to 2050, the global population will have doubled. Now, in that same time, we are facing tremendous ecological problems. Sure. Uh, so I understand, just for example, I mean, just forget about the various tornadoes and things like that. And I was in Japan uh, when the tsunami hit. Fortunately, I was on holiday in Thailand then. Okay. But when the tsunami came and it destroyed such an immense fabric, it really made me realize what could happen uh, as these things become more and more um, obvious. And so uh, then if you put together the possibility of more climatic disasters, whatever global warming is going to do, and then you come to realize that the movement of people that's going to happen. We're experiencing a lot of migration problems in um, immigration problems in Europe now because of people fleeing the troubles in, in the Middle East. Sure. And the infrastructure can't handle it. The, the, the societies here can take some people, but they can't keep taking them all. And, and then if you look at that, what might happen in a, in, in a foreseeable future when you have uh, environmental disasters where, for example, I mean, I remember this wonderful move that Al Gore made and where he said the possibility that a lot of lowland uh, areas will be flooded. And he was talking, in, I remember talking about um, India. So you have millions of people moving, uh, just trying to get away from the rising flood levels, if that happens. Sure. Um, and then you've got to imagine that if, you're, if you have your job and you have your home, your security, you will be happy to help one or two people, but you can't handle 
hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people, you're going to say, no, I don't want this. Sure. And then you've got to have the problem of the army will come in, and the army will say, we have to control the situation. Otherwise, we'll have uh, anarchy and we have the society will fall down. Then the problem becomes is what then are we going to do with such a, uh, a, mass, a mass of people who don't have a job, who need support, and possibly also at this time we're going to have um, food problems. Yep. So many people and, and then environmental problems. So basically what I'm saying is, is that the education that we have throughout the world in any country today is based on producing a model citizen from the 19th century. Sure. Either, either school was designed to produce a, a manager for the society and then they went to university or a worker and they just went through the school system. Now we kind of modified that now with the various social changes in the 1960s and 70s, etc. But the basic underlying plan is the same. The child that we produce in, for, the child that we process in education today to be the citizen of the future is no different than the citizen that was required in 1850, 1950. It's the same model citizen. So what we need is an educational structure that, that first of all teaches children how to think, that it gives them a value of intelligence, and then teaches them greater uh, moral aptitude uh, to be more, to be aware of who they are, to have inner strength, to be better together with the society, and then of course with the environment. No, I 100% I agree with you, and I, I think it's interesting, like two reasons that I kind of wanted to have you on the show is obviously I, I like your opinion and, and you know, your um, education on, on kind of the way we should be educating kids. But I think um, your, your story and kind of your background, because I, I think there's a lot of people that are coined by society sometimes to, to say that, you know, you're not going to be anything or, or whatnot. And, you know, you hustled and you, you basically proved them wrong, right? And I love that about you. And I think the other thing that's super important is you're right, that education comes in kind of different ways. And, we, and now that the world is such a small place that we need to stop thinking about kind of our own city or country and think about the world as, a, as like a global kind of thing, just because, well, everything's global nowadays, right? Like you can get anywhere within, you know, a couple days of flying or, you know, just through the internet. Well, I'm in Canada right now. You're in... Um, you know, the UK and it's just, it doesn't even, it's like we're having a conversation side by side. It doesn't even really matter, right? It's such a small uh, world now. Yeah. I mean, it, it took me 20 hours to be in Tasmania. Uh, sure. It's not, you know, it, it's just a few hours travel. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so, so go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. So what struck me when I began to examine why we think intelligence is inherited, then I became involved in a kind of political intrigue in the 19th century. And what I realized is that, you know, it's the winners who write the history books. And so in, in, the, you know, in the Western society, we're told about various campaigns and, and military leaders and people like that. And we're made a kind of aware of the social change that evolved because of the Industrial Revolution. A lot of emphasis is not placed on the struggles of the working people and the social political background that they caused a shift in society. So I had to go into the 1848 revolutions and really understand how they worked and how then for the second half of the 19th century, the whole of Europe was, a, in, was infested with networks, people spying on each other, the socialists trying to find out how they could get a better life and the people at the top trying to find out how they could hold them down. And then I kind of thought, well, well, you know, if we can convince everybody that the child inherits an ability, then it's something that they can't argue with. And it gives everything a kind of a, a, a stability. So, for example, you know, we thought that kings had, red, had blue blood and therefore they were special than everybody else. And you couldn't be a king if you didn't have blue blood. But if you amplify that, that's exactly what this concept of inherited intelligence is. It's a way of convincing people that they can only be as good as their parents. And of course, that philosophy was very prominent up until, well, maybe the, the 1920s, 1930s. People did believe that you can only be, you can't be better than yourself. I remember my grandmother telling me that. 
uh, you know, don't try to be better than, than you are. Interesting. Um, and it's that mind frame that I wanted to examine how did it come about and why was it so deeply ingrained into the consciousness of our civilization? So then I, well, then I went really into understanding why we think intelligence is inherited and how various people have tried to prove it. And then I came through, I went through all the years and I found so much fraud, so much lie, so much dishonesty. And this was propagated and it was fed into a machine that convinced everybody you are what you're born to be. Sure. Uh, and it's not true. And <laughs> we know that now. I mean, there are so many people now who achieve great things who became from a very humble background. Sure. As they did in the 19th century, but now it's more obvious. Sure. So then I found out that the real value of this idea of inherited intelligence was that it gave the educational machine the means by which it could economically operate. It meant that one teacher could go into a class of, well, at that time, 50, 70, 80 kids. And now, of course, it's only 30, 40. But then they could, the, the kids were then, they would come in, the teacher would give information, the teacher would would look at the, the responses they gave and they would say, okay, this child is a, a grade nine, this child is a grade six, and, and whatever. And then they would monitor them as they go through the system. And then at the end, they would decide whether or not they would go into university or if they would become a, a worker. And as I said to you before, that hasn't changed. What I was astonished to realize was that when I began to study about Alfred Binet, now, Alfred Binet was a very famous French uh, uh, psychologist. And if you look at most books in psychology, they tend to say that Alfred Binet produced the first intelligence test. Alfred Binet did not produce the first intelligence test. Alfred Binet wrote that intelligence cannot be measured. All, all Binet did was to try to find a system by which a child who was poor of ability could be identified as because of a social background or because of something that they may have they have, may have inherited, which at that time was very plausible, and it's it was and, and throughout most of the twentieth century. Uh, that's all Binet did. But what Binet uh, insisted upon was that the first thing we should do when a kid begins to school is to teach them how to think. And uh, we we don't think about that. We don't think that intelligence can be taught. We don't realize, we don't know what intelligence is. Um, and, and so what I try to do really now is to go to schools and to parents. I mean, I love parents because it's the parents who are really gonna change everything. Because the way that um, society has convinced the people is that the mother and the father, they make the baby, and they look after the child with love and whatever. And then at the age of five, six or seven, suddenly they hand the kid over to the school system and the school system will do the best that they can for that child. The reality, of course, is that one human being called a teacher has to struggle with what they get, what society gives them. And uh, they're breaking down. We, we know now that teachers are just leaving. Uh, because they can't handle the bureaucratic stress placed upon them and the kind of kids that the society is giving to them. Uh, some schools, you know, like battle zones. Anyway, we're, we're diverging here. So basically what I say is that, um, and I give examples of how to do this, is to teach children uh, awareness, sensitivity, and help them to understand the role of emotion in learning because emotion is the key factor to intelligence. In fact, in my third book, The Brain Environment Complex, I present a whole new concept to what intelligence could be, and I explain its reliance upon the emotion and the language. Um, just to give you a key to that, um, what I was able to understand is that um, you might be very, very happy in, in what you're doing, reading or, or, or monitoring something, and, you, and you're interested and sensitive. But if suddenly you feel a kind of insecurity, for example, in a classroom, some kid's going to bully you, or for some children being abused at home, or, or some kind of thing that's, that's playing on their mind, worrying them, 
what that do what that does is alters the chemistry in their brain basically it it, it raises a neurotransmitter called cortisol and once when cortisol uh, rises up it it limits the ability of the other neurotransmitters uh, serotonin um, dopamine etc to do their job so that the brain is focusing upon the immediate danger or the danger the child is frightened of so, so that explains why when a child is in the classroom, it can't concentrate on what the teacher is talking about because they're frightened of something else. So we can understand that in a neurological sense. And when you do that, it begins to realize what intelligence is and therefore how the child can learn to perform better. So once you understand that this distraction, this lack of concentration is because of a worry of some sort or another, and, and it, it, uh, it occurs because of the rise of cortisol, then the question is, how do you lower the cortisol so the, the other neurotransmitters can, can do their job better? And the simple answer is calm down. Uh, so we need to teach ch children how to meditate, play calming music, to teach them actually what is happening inside their brain when, when they're frightened. And this is a very big thing. There's a great guy um, uh, in America called Rusty May. He's doing a fantastic job in going around schools, talking about bullying, and trying to his best to try to stop kids hurting each other uh, with all kinds of bullying. And bullying is a tremendous big problem. So, you know, really now, now we have two problems that never really existed when I was a kid. This level of bullying, as we see with uh, telephones and things like that, and of course, children taking their own life, which was something that just didn't exist when I was a kid. And the big problem with uh, kids playing video games. I meet so many parents who are really deeply stressed, worried, concerned, because they can't control their children playing with these, uh, they call them devil boxes now, uh, because uh, it does two things. It causes the child to be very insular. They don't, want to, they, want, they don't want to share their feelings with other people because their feelings are losing inside a, a, a little a game. And it's causing them to lose the interest of why uh, they need to do the homework and why they need to study. They lost a balance. And this brings me to another point. With so many teachers now beginning to find other jobs to look for because of the stress within school. And for example, in UK last year, we had 40% of new teachers just left. After wow. 12, or 12 months, they said, wow, this isn't what I want. So they'd studied you know, the university, whatever, three years to do this job. And they'd gone to practice sessions. But when they began the job, before the 12 months were out, they changed. They'd gone 40% found. Now, I know from friends in America, it's very similar there. And as I found out in Denmark and other places too. So we need to consider more really the stress that the teachers are living through that's taking away their happiness. And, you know, if you think about it, the purpose of the teacher is simply just to go into a classroom, get everybody happy and teach them things to learn. What is happening is that the teacher is so stressed by the paperwork that they have to do, the stress upon them to write reports and whatever. Then they go into a classroom with kids, well, you know, climbing over tables and whatever. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Like that. And so we're, we're not thinking about the human being inside the teacher. We need to be kinder to the teacher too. Which brings me to another point. I read a very, very good book in America written by a friend of mine, Carrie Howells. Uh, she called her book Gratitude and Education. And when I first thought about this, I thought, oh, gratitude is so obvious. But when I thought about more about it, as I talked about it with Carrie, if the parents can show gratitude to the child, the child has a purpose to want to be happy. If the children show gratitude to the teacher, the teacher shows gratitude to the children. If the administrators show gratitude to the teachers, the teachers show gratitude to the parents. And if everybody works with a sense of givingness rather than complaining, then the system can be more efficient. And I like that very much. And I wrote about that in my books. Um, so, Basically, what I try to do now is I, I try to um, get people to read the books that I've written, spend 20 years writing, and I go around and I talk to parents and to teachers, and I try to explain to them the need to teach children how to think when they come into school. Uh, 
I, I write about a very good uh, man um, in America in the 1920s who had the idea of not teaching children arithmetic, but instead teaching them how to reason. He, he made reason one of the three basic arts. And then when these kids were 11 years old, they were then uh, taught arithmetic for the first time. And what he found out was that the kids who had not been taught arithmetic until they were 11 performed higher in that, in that year from 11 to 12 than the kids who had been taught arithmetic from the age of five. Teaching children how to think gave them a better uh, way of, of understanding the information they were with. So when I talk about intelligence, I, I explain to people explain to the people that when you, when you think about intelligence you really you're thinking about performance and so what is performance basically performance is how well the individual is sensitive to information how well they understand what they're really looking at and how interested they are and then once they once they if the, depending upon their sensitivity and how they examine information so they're going to store that in their memory banks the more efficient they are in sensitivity, the more clearer will be the information categorized, which means that when they come to new information, so they will find it faster. Then what we've got to realize is kids don't know how to project their mind to another. So you can go into a classroom, you can ask so many kids uh, if they know the right answer, and many of them will say yes. When you try to, you ask them questions, you'll find that some are very fast in their response and give a very clear answer and others will not be. But if you look at those others who are not, and if you really try to help them to explain their mind, you find that they had the same basic information, but they didn't know how to present it. Nobody taught them. And so that's why we have a grading system. And this brings us to another point. The idea of the bell curve, the distribution curve, was created in order to produce a, varia a variation of skills, because this is exactly what the employers wanted. They wanted education to tell them who could do this kind of a job and who could do that kind of a job and who would do this kind of job as a processing system. Okay, <laughs> I got a drink. No, no I, I, think it, I think it's really interesting because the, the thing that kind of me kind of working in in the startup space and, and kind of being like an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of people nowadays, in, in a lot of cases, especially, you know, the younger generation starting companies and whatnot, sometimes they've had, um, you know, they've been to university and they've been really successful. Some are, some are like high school dropouts, right? And they just kind of figured out what they needed to learn and kind of almost self-taught their way to the top. And I think, you know, there's a lot, lot more articles even surfacing online where you have some people that say don't go to university if you want to be a startup go just go try to work at a company or go to an incubator or you know because you're going to learn way more in in that period of time than you ever will with you know trying to go to post-secondary or university and it, it's an interesting kind of movement and I know you're in this space kind of talking about kids as you know they're growing up and, and whatnot I and I think it's super important because in a lot of cases, you know, certain school districts and systems aren't teaching or aren't, aren't preparing our kids for the future. I haven't met anybody who is. Uh, they think they are by teaching them computer computer skills. Sure. And it's really frightening to watch ministers in my country believing that the every kid should have their own computer and then every kid will then have a better education because of it. The real danger with this is that, first of all, computers are only going to do, um, we have to understand that, that, that the purpose of school was to create a citizen who would comply. So we, we, we taught and we still teach children a dualistic way of thinking. They understand yes or they understand no, yes or no. Now we talk about teaching them critical, critical thinking, but that's not, doesn't really happen, it's just in a, uh, surface level. So the kid who goes through the normal school system will come out of it, as we say, as a dualistic thinker. They will say yes or, or they'll think yes or no. And this is a kind of citizen that, that was wanted in the 19th and 20th centuries, people who would comply. Sure. And then those who managed for, uh, normally for financial reasons, were able to get into university, they were taught skills of how to reason. They were taught how to think. 
And so then uh, we, uh, well, for most of the previous century, we were still producing an element, a small element of people who were taught how to think and a large element who were not. Um, and this idea then that people have is that kids got to go to university uh, is lingered with us. And of course, a huge industry has grown out of that. And now we have so many kids who naturally think, oh, I'm going to go to university. And of course, you know, this is a big con because now they have to, then they have to borrow the money or the parents have to borrow the money to send them to university. And we've got so many people coming out of university now that a degree, uh, apart from a special subject, means nothing. Yep. So you've got kids stacking shelves with a degree. Yep. And then, of course, they have a lifetime debt to pay for it. Um, what we really need to do is to understand the purpose of the citizen and society how to make people, how to make a society more secure and more happier so that the base of people are content within it. We need to hold on to the idea of democracy. It's a beautiful idea. Um, and with the way that our technology is rising, the pressures in society, we, we kind of be, got to be careful, very careful that we hold on to the basics, which is the human being in the society. And that's got to do a lot with love. The more love we give to kids, the more they will value it when they become a member of the society. Sure. No, I, I think that's really good advice. But maybe let's kind of cover, um, I, you have five books you've written. Do you maybe want to give kind of a little bit of an overview of, you know, each book and kind of what, what each book covers? Okay, thank you. The first book is called The Illusion of Education. Um, we've kind of covered some, some of this. The sure. illusion of education explains why we think education is, is, is equal today. And it explains why we do not teach children how to think when they begin school, um, as I've already indicated. Uh, sure. Because essentially, the society believes the kids born with a quality of intelligence and the, system, the school system merely processes that. Um, so, the, so the illusion of education uh, opens up to why we have education and it looks at some of the problems like bullying uh, and how that can be controlled. And then it talks, really uh, introduces this nanotechnology I mentioned a little bit before. And then it really goes back into the kind of problems that we had. You know, in America, we had this fantastic guy called John, John Dewey. And he had the great idea about how children should learn. But he wasn't given the, 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 the platform. It went to other people like Thorndike, who did experiments with uh, rats to find out how children should learn, which, of course, enabled the production system of, of mass producing children for a mass producing society. And then the book uh, moves on to the political problems in the 19th century to understand, to begin to understand why we think intelligence is inherited. Sure. Okay. And, and the, go yeah. ahead, sorry. No, that's right. So that's the first book, The Illusion of Education, How School Designs the Ability of the Citizen. That's book one. Sure. And then book two is The Hidden Secrets of Intelligence, Unveiling the Greatest Myth of Our Time. And here I go way back to Newton and, and Lamarck, and I explain how um, the idea of being able to evaluate intelligence in the population grew, and then how it was tried to be measured. And I talk about oh, uh, people like Henry Goddard in America, Vineland Institution, how he created the idea of the, word, the term moron, believing it was um, uh, inherited, and how that created a political program to force over 100,000 people to be sterilized when there was really nothing wrong with them at all. They just didn't fit into the uh, political structure at the time. And then we, we, we go through people like, um, well, in England, Cyril Bird, who for three quarters of a century deliberately lied and falsified uh, programs and reports to support his view of right-wing politics, uh, which essentially was that the kid inherited their intelligence and that if a poor, so a poor kid should not be given uh, should not be sent to a better school because they'll just be wasting government money. And for three quarters of a century, his philosophy controlled British education. Of course, at that time, Commonwealth education. Sure. That's sad. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
but but this but this book is full of instances like that. Uh, for example, um, Henry Goddard created a, a, a belief in inherited ability by creating a, a, a story of the Kalakak family, and he produced he produced fo photographs of people who looked uh, feeble-minded, and he was able to say, well, like. The, uh, these people are feeble-minded because they inherited it. But what I was able to uncover, along with other people, was that this was all a big con. He lied about it. He he falsified the photographs. He, you know, this before photographs, before Photoshop. He took these photographs and with a, with an etching knife, he made the he distorted the images of the people to make them look as if they weren't normal. And wow, interesting. His. Yeah, but, but God was one of the founders of psychology in America. And the work that he did was then was built into the structure of global education. And then, uh, yeah, then we go through about the IQ test and how that came about and how people like Terman uh, falsified what Stern did and uh, what, how Stern falsified what Binet did. And are we going through like that? And then at the end of the book, we come to really try to understand what genetics is and how one of the founders of genetics, a Danish man by the name Johansson, really objected to the way that uh, psychology was trying to say that intelligence is inherited. And what you find out today, as I did, is that there are so many psychologists who are, of course, trained, raised, convinced that intelligence is inherited, that they don't look for other means by, to explain how a child learns. And uh, on the other hand, geneticists, the ones that I've met, will say, no, you can't say that intelligence is inherited in the individual, because you cannot go from the population level to the individual level. The environment is so diverse, you can't measure it. It's impossible. And of course, if you think about, if you just think about it simply, you may inherit the DNA, the genes, but for the genes to work, they have to we, uh, they have to create protons, and whatever chemicals in you've got your body at the at that moment is going to change the protons. So if you have a cup of coffee, your protons will change, and that'll change the ability of the, of the genes. Anyway, the book goes explains that, and then it comes right down to the very end to what we call transposons, and this has come out within the past eighteen months. In every cell of the body, we have a nucleus. Within the nucleus, we have DNA. But also within this nucleus, we have ancient genetic material going way back to Adam and Eve or the first Homo sapiens sapiens. Now, in the body and in the glycial cells which make the brain, the DNA isolates this uh, old genetic material so that when, when one, one cell uh, produces another cell within the body, the DNA is the same. It, it, it doesn't basically change. However, within neurons, they have not, neurons have not developed a way of isolating these this ancient genetic material, these transposons. So when one neuron buds another into existence, the DNA changes. So in effect, every brain cell in each of our brains will be genetically different. And once we understand that, it completely destroys the idea of genetic differences between races, social levels, or whatever. We're just a human being. And what I really tried to, well, okay, just hold a minute. So, we go into the third book, The Brain Environment Complex, in search of a new understanding of intelligence. And here I devote some chapters to neurology. Now, what really struck me was that in the very beginning, I knew that I was going against what a lot of people believed in. So I had to, be, I had to really prove academically what I was talking about. So these books really have a lot of citations, a lot of reference points, and they are academic, but... I wanted really them to be read by parents. So I, read, so I wrote them in a way that the normal parent could enjoy reading them and not get bogged down with science books. Sure. And in fact, one, one teacher from Israel, she wrote to me that she said, this book is like a Bible and, and everybody should read it. But she said also, it's like reading Jane Austen. It's a lovely story to read. And um, a lot of people say that they enjoy the, the way that I've tried to write the books because yeah, I wanted, you see, I wanted the parents to read them and enjoy them. Um, 
And then, so this book goes through a bit of neurology, explains how synapses work, and it also explains how uh, a neural network builds up. And once you understand that, so you will realize the importance of sensitivity, sensitivity in how the information affects the brain. And then it, it goes on to explain uh, a little bit about how the brain forms and how the sensory systems build up, not from a genetic plan, but from a genetic key that enables the environment to build up those systems. And that really begins to make you realize how important uh, the, the process of intelligence is developmental. Then I go into the fourth book, Mediation, Crafting the Intelligence of the Child in Home and School. And here I amplify uh, more of what I did in the third book by explaining that intelligence is dependent upon two factors. It is emotion and it is language. And emotion is the emotional sensitivity of the human being to feel secure and happy with those people about them and how they, how they interact with information. Once they are secure, once the level of emotion is stable, their ability to interact or to integrate with the environment will be dependent upon the quality of language they've got. And what we find out is that professional parents normally teach their kids a greater vocabulary before they go to school than, than working class parents. And, and that everybody loves their child and everybody believes that they're doing the right thing. But the better educated people, they are naturally teaching their children a greater vocabulary, they're more sensitive with information, and they're teaching them skills, naturally, not necessarily without thinking about it, that many of the people are not aware of. And okay, nobody realizes this until day one at school, when suddenly the primary school teacher or, or whatever is confronted with little kids, five, six, seven years old, who appear different. And it's from day one that normally the kid will move through the system as they began, except unless they meet some nasty little person who's going to bully them and terrorize them and then cause their concentration levels to go down, which of course raises the cortisol level in the brain and causes them to worry and, and to focus on the wrong thing instead of being happy in, in, in their school work. And then, um, at the end of the book, I, I, I devote one chapter to a wonderful man I worked with in Israel called Reuven Feuerstein. And Reuven, um, he, he, he came from Romania, and at the end, during the Second World War, he, he, he went to Israel because he was Jewish. He died last year. And he was confronted with so many children who had come from these concentration camps, these death camps, and they couldn't learn. And psychologists were rubber stamping them, saying, stupid, low IQ. And he thought to myself, he thought to himself, well, why can't these kids learn? And I have some photographs here, and, and you can see that these children are so emotionless. They're, they're, they're just like a zombie. So he, he then created this system of uh, cognitive, cognitive development, which is really wonderful. And I've worked with this, and it's a Feuerstein uh, cognitive training system. It, it's really very, very good. And I advocate that people should know about this system and use it. It does help to raise intelligence at all levels. I mean, I used it with um, <laughs> with uh, managers in banks in Denmark, not just kids. Interesting. Everybody can learn to develop their intelligence. And this is a very good system to use it. Um, his son, Rafai, uh, is now taken over, and I understand. This is a global organization, and they, they do a lot to help kids to, to learn better. Um, and then oh, the book uh, kind of winds up, kind of winds off there. And then we go to the final book, Preparing Education to Serve a New World. And here I introduce, first of all, the kind of things that's going wrong with the way teachers teach children. Um, um, for example, uh, there was a professor in America. She went into a school and she asked six, uh, 50 teachers how to find the area of an oblong, um, uh, a rectangle. And not one of the 50 teachers knew how to find the surface area. 
yet they were teaching mathematics. And of course, they would make various excuses. But the question comes down is they didn't really know what they were doing with this subject. Um, then how can we teach kids if the teachers don't really know? So then I uh, then in that book, I suggest the probable reality of nanotechnology. Now, sure, it's interesting. We have to think that everything in our world right now is, sure. uh, is, is, is fashioned by the mass movement of molecules. We take iron ore, we melt it down, we make steel, we bend and we cut the steel, we make a car. We take oil from the ground, with, with temperature we make it into plastics. So by thermal changes, we move masses of atoms and molecular structures to create the, our, our world. Now, the idea of nanotechnology, and it is developing, is that there will be a machine uh, with, a, with a sensor and a controlling arm controlled by a computer. Now, this machine will be so small that you can imagine one million of them in a very, very small spot in your arm. These machines then would then uh, go into any structure, rock, soil, clay, mud, whatever, and um, then be able to identify individual atoms within that structure. Uh, then uh, they would then separate these atoms. Another machine would then go in called an assembler and then would, recon would then reconstruct these atoms to create a product according to the design of the computer. So essentially, one machine would then go, would go into a substance and then mass produce a number of machines, like very, very fast, incredibly fast. The idea then is that by a computer control program, these machines will then link together to create uh, the fabric of, of, of an object. So you might have a cup on your table that instead of that being made of clay, would then be made of little nanomachines, uh, all held together by a computer program. Now, by something called machine phase system, if you then change the computer program, those machines would come apart and make something else, perhaps the table, the table that you're actually working on. Once this technology becomes more real, and there's a tremendous money being placed into it, it, it means that the economic base of all, of all countries will change because they will no longer be reliant upon what they produce. So it means that in some time in the future, people in, for example, the Sudan could have sure. the same kind of life opportunities as the people in, in, in the middle of America um, because the natural resources uh, are, are different. Um, the, this then, of course, means that if you consider all these other factors of, um, we mentioned before global warming and, and, and mass populations and economic problems and political problems, that we're moving towards a sort of global administration where we, we identify with, uh, with an organization that tries to control the planet in a better way than we are individually doing it politically. If and when we move into that kind of situation, we're really going to need a different kind of citizen. And, and this citizen is, is got to be one of higher reasoning ability. So they do not react so much on their emotions and they're not so controlled by little, by little uh, political programs, but they work towards the common good. And that's what education needs to do to help it. I've devised a system of teaching, which I call the Anderson Aptitude Method of Teaching. The aptitude of the teacher creates the aptitude of the student. And I've had a lot of success with this. And basically it's based on the idea of being able to reach the heart and the soul of each child to give them stability, interest, and inspire them to learn. Uh, so I like to think that we can teach intelligence through inspiration and compassion. And then, to help the child of today live better in the world that they will live in, I've suggested uh, a new curriculum. Uh, so we teach children a greater awareness of the, of the kind of world that they will live in, which of course will be more socially orientated. And this brings me right back to something I indicated uh, at the very beginning. If education now 
moves towards computers. And it, if it thinks about replacing the human teacher with a computer program, and it is of course happening, what, what we're doing is we're depriving children of this peer relationship. The, the ability to express their feelings, to, to ask sure. questions, to know how to understand another human being. And this is the big danger. We, we need to have citizens in the future who will work with the technology, but understand the value of the human being within it. We, you know, it's not difficult now to go to somebody who looks at a computer screen and just reads out and then say, yes, you can have this. No, you can't. Goodbye. We have things there, you know. Yep, you're right. It's interesting. No, yeah, but um, no, this has been awesome, Roy, but sadly we're out of time. So maybe let's um, close the show with kind of mentioning where people can find yourself online. My daughter has made a fantastic website for me. It's called www.andersonroy.com, and that's spelled A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N-R-O-Y.com. And my email address uh, I have two, and I would love to hear from parents, teachers, psychologists, politicians, whatever, is royanderson95 at gmail.com. And that is Romeo Oscar Yankee, Alpha November Delta, Echo Romeo Sierra, Echo November 95, -N -E -R -S -E -N 95 at gmail.com. Please. And I'm also on uh, LinkedIn, Roy Anderson, and Facebook. And I've made a, a group that I call Changing the Future Through Education. I would really love to hear from anybody. Awesome, Roy. Well, that's been that's great. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your uh, day to be on the show. And I look forward to kind of staying in touch with you and, uh, you know, seeing what happens, right? Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. I really great. appreciate this. Thank great, man. Well, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks again for doing this. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them in the future.